today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's get an update. The second appearance of the humble crash accused has happened this morning. To talk more about all of this, Ryan Kessler is with us, reporter with Global Saskatoon and on the line with us now. Ryan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Anytime. So what happened, Ryan? What happened in the courtroom today? What was the reasoning for this visit? Certainly. Well, certainly what we uh, visited here, or what we saw here today was really uh, a standard procedure for any court case. Uh, obviously, this is a very complicated case and one that is expected to take a great deal of time. So really what we saw in court was that the accused, Jaskarit Singh Sidhu, was not present in court. At this stage in the process, he's not legally required to be there. His lawyer did appear by phone and he really only spoke for a moment or two before the matter was adjourned until October 2nd. So really, this is just one step in what can be a very lengthy process. So this was over and uh, done within a matter of minutes. That's correct. And really, this is, as I mentioned, a very normal stage where people can appear for a minute just to request another day. In this case, the lawyer said that he had received some information about the particulars of this case, and he just wanted more time to review it. Uh, So at this stage in the game, that's where we're at, uh, just the defense asking for more time. We don't have an indication right now whether the accused will be pleading guilty or not guilty. Um, We can expect that at some point in this process. It's possible on October 2nd that he may enter a plea if he's uh, electing to go through the provincial court system. However, that is uh, not something that uh, we are aware of at this point. So he was granted more time and extend- this extended to October 2nd, is that correct? That is correct, yes. And uh, so uh, is there any reason, was, would there have been any reason for them not to extend this? Is, is there, like you said, is there anything out of the ordinary here? Really, I can't imagine a situation where the time would not be uh, granted. Really, uh, I think both parties, the defense and the Crown, are interested in making sure that there's uh, a fair process for both the accused and the interests of the public. So considering the fact that this incident only happened in April and that the accused was charged three months after that, to be requesting more time at this stage is pretty normal, although uh, certainly there are people that are very frustrated that it's even taken this long. Uh, there was plenty of fr- frustration about the investigation length. Uh, a lot of people thought that uh, the arrest could have been made the day of the crash, but really uh, it's not abnormal for uh, this process to be happening as it is right now. Was there anyone in the courtroom other than required officials and perhaps uh, uh, the media? Well, in the past, during the first appearance, we heard from Scott Thomas, the father of Evan Thomas, who was a player who died in the crash. And Scott Thomas said that he felt it was important for him to be there during the first appearance so that the accused would look him in the eye. And and Scott Thomas said that that did occur at one point because he wanted to make sure that the accused saw the, the eyes of a person who was affected by the crash. This time around, there was there were no members of the family that I could decipher. Um, there was a, a representative for the Crown, not the uh, Crown prosecutor that will be dealing with this case, but a representative. And as I mentioned, the defense appeared by the phone. So really, it was a, a procedural day, if you will. Do we know any more about the person charged or the trucking company he was working for? Well, at this point, not much is known about Jaskarit Sidhu. What we do know is that he was a driver for the company called Adesh Deal Trucking. Uh, at the time of the collision, the company owner has told us in the past that Sidhu had been on the road for about two weeks. At the time of the collision, he had been uh, 
undergoing training for that job to, uh, for two weeks before the cra- or before he took to the road. So really, he had been with the company for one month. Uh, other than that, we know that uh, under his bail conditions, he is required to stay at his home in Calgary in a basement suite there. Uh, what we've heard from neighbors is that uh, he lived a very quiet life, uh, a very unassuming life. Uh, really, we don't know too much about the accused. As for the company, the latest we've heard is that charges have not been laid at this point. Um, certainly, it's it's always possible in an incident like this that the company could be uh, charged criminally as well. Uh, but we have no indication of that so far. How is Humboldt doing, uh, especially those recovering victims? Any more information to report there? Well, just this past weekend, they held a memorial golf tournament in Humboldt. And it, for a lot of these families, it was an opportunity to come together. Uh, there's a real, real sort of kinship uh, between the people affected by this crash. They have uh, an instant messaging group that they often communicate by. And now with this memorial golf tournament, it gave them an opportunity to come together uh, raise some money for the hockey club itself. Um, but really what the prevailing sentiment we've heard is that, you know, no amount of money in fundraising, no amount of time can bring back the 16 lives lost. And for the people who are injured, uh, certainly many of them face a long road of recovery as well. And, and really the experience is unique to every single person that was on that bus. Hmm. It's going to be fascinating uh, to watch as this team gets back up and, and, and starts another season this year. Definitely. And we actually will see the beginnings of that process uh, as soon as this weekend on Friday. Uh, there's an event called Hockey Day in Humboldt uh, planned where uh, it's basically an opportunity for Chandler Stevenson of Saskatoon to bring the Stanley Cup. Uh, to the community. He has just won it with the Washington Capitals. And uh, really, it's sort of a community celebration, an opportunity to sort of embrace everything that is uh, Humboldt. And uh, also, at the same time, training camp begins on Friday for the Humboldt Broncos. Um, we'll, of course, have coverage of that through the weekend. And uh, we certainly will be uh, attending training camp as much as possible. And it's important to note that this is a junior A hockey club. This team is not used to the type of fishbowl that they've been placed inside it's it's really not normal for a junior a hockey team to have uh news cameras set up in their arena watching the players who are 16 17 trying out for this hockey team so for a lot of these players it's going to be an unprecedented situation but what we've heard from a lot of them is that they wanted to be in humble to be here for this season to make sure that the broncos organization continues are the people in town, as time goes by and, and, and you know, they say time heals all wounds, are, are people bitter? Are they angry? Uh, are, are they coming to terms with this? What's the, what's the mood of the town? It's hard to say. I mean, there's really no way to fully comprehend the experience, first of all, of the people directly affected by the crash. I think those people will never forget. Uh, for those in Humboldt, they, I, I think there is a sentiment among some that they want to continue on with their lives and not have their city be a community solely defined by one tragic collision involving their hockey team. I think there is a group of people who feel that, you know, Humboldt is still open for business. They still want people to come through their town to visit, to see everything that it has to offer. Uh, but really, I think it's a 
uh, it's an experience that's unique to every single person that's there. And I'm sure some of them are very angry and very frustrated about, for example, this legal process that is taking longer than many would like. What uh, about, I, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say that really, I think this, uh, it, it's hard to nail down one or two sentiments. I think that uh, there's a great deal of feelings going on. What about changes to uh, the transportation system uh, in Saskatchewan? What about uh, provincial regulations, driver training, this sort of thing? Has there been any, any chatter of that at all? There's been talk of that in Alberta uh, about changing some of the regulations there. In Saskatchewan, as far as I understand, it's something that is still constantly being reviewed by the government. Whenever there is a serious incident like this at an intersection, uh, there is an, a review that is undertaken by the government, and they'll come back with any sort of recommendations about possible improvements, be it rumble strips on the highway leading up to the stop sign, uh, be it changes to the trucking industry, that type of thing. We've heard from the national level that uh, there will be changes in the future uh, requiring new uh, buses when they're manufactured to have seatbelts on them. Uh, so that's one big change. But uh, really, I think it's sort of an ongoing process, and we haven't heard too much from the Saskatchewan government specifically. Obviously, this all uh, still before the courts. Uh, that being said, uh, there seemed to be lots of concern over the training that this driver had had, that he had only been on the job for two weeks. Is there any discussion about perhaps maybe he needed more training before getting behind the wheel? I think that's certainly been a, a feeling that a lot of people have had, that there needs to be more training here. But I think this incident has really just shone a light on uh, the irregularities between, first of all, the provinces about what types of training is required and how much of it. Uh, I think that you can expect in the future to see uh, more of a uniform process across provinces. And uh, certainly I think that you can expect to see uh, a toughening of rules surrounding trucking uh, training uh, probably across Canada, if I were to guess. When you go to Humboldt, Saskatchewan right now, are you reminded of this tragedy? What is still there as far as a memorial, or has there been any chatter of some sort of permanent uh, thing? Uh, What is visible of this in Humboldt now, or have they moved on? Well, Humboldt does need to be a functioning city, of course. They do need to have an arena that is actually used for its originally intended purposes. I mean, as soon as the crash happened, there were two memorials that had been set up. One was at the Elgar Peterson Arena where the Broncos play, and people had brought all sorts of flowers, uh, different types of pictures, other memorials that were placed there. A lot of those things have been placed around the arena. Uh, A lot of that has also been placed in a local museum that has kind of set up a gallery that showcases the international support uh, for these Broncos. I mean, we saw stuff coming out of Europe, out of Asia. You know, the Queen acknowledged it at one point. Uh, So that was one memorial. The other one is actually at the crash site itself, which is uh, in northeastern Saskatchewan, just between the communities of Tisdale and Nipawin. And at that crash site, there has been a memorial ever since April 7th. I remember watching the RCMP lay the first cross at that site. And that memorial still stands. There have been conversations about uh, establishing something permanent at that intersection. But at the same time, there are also concerns about creating a memorial that does not then create a distraction at that intersection. Uh, People traveling uh, Hmm. east east and westbound along there now have to drive at 60 kilometers an hour instead of 100 uh, because of that memorial. And I'm sure even even now people still stop on a daily basis to 
either come and lay flowers or crosses. Every time I see it, it looks different than the last time I saw it. Hmm. Uh, so there could be something established there permanently, but people are also taking into consideration safety of uh, those driving by. All right, last question. Uh, you said the speed limit had been lowered. Have there been physical changes to that intersection since this accident? At this point, not that I'm aware of. I can't recall whether it was already 60 kilometers an hour, but I somehow doubt it. What I suspect is that it's been temporarily changed because of the influx of people going to that intersection, whether that becomes permanent or not, or whether rumble strips are installed or a light or anything else uh, that remains to be seen. Ryan Kessler has been with us, reporter, Global Saskatoon, in regard to the second appearance of the Humboldt crash accused uh, happening this morning. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about uh, this week in Trump uh, in regard to him continually bashing us on the NAFTA front. And Lady, uh, obviously enough, uh, quite uh, ironically, First Lady Melania Trump speaking uh, at an event uh, in an effort to curb cyberbullying. Clearly, she hasn't had this discussion with her husband. Let's bring in George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. George, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So uh, let's start with the NAFTA situation. Uh, This is a couple of days old. We heard the conversation of Donald Trump basically saying, you know, Canada's not even in the table. Uh, We're not even talking to them. Their tariffs are too high. We're just dealing with Mexico. You know, divide and conquer, the same sort of thing. Um, Experts say that this is normal. There's issues with Mexico that have to be, uh, uh, I guess, uh, solved before we can move on to a greater deal with with the three countries. Um, Is that the case? Is this just more bluster from Donald Trump? (laughs) Um, It's difficult. It's a bit of both, I think. I mean, I think there there are, everybody agree, or the Canadians agree, that there are issues between, with Mexico, uh, being a sort of a low-wage country, that the Americans are, are very are pushing very hard on, but any solution there also benefits Canada. So you know it, it, it's, it doesn't do us any harm if he does reach some kind of agreement, which seems to be uh, along these kind of lines with Mexico. Um, but he obviously hasn't got over his snit about you know Trudeau and everything, <laughs> and and so he's saying you know he's saying well we're we're, we'll deal with the Canadians later, or we won't deal with the Canadians. No, I, th- I think it it will it has to be, and the Mexicans certainly want this as well. So uh, is a this three a, way, a three-way negotiation in the end? And Canada has been standing very firm, and we don't have the kind of the kind of issues that we have with the Americans and the Mexicans have with Americans. They're separate from the, these particular negotiations that are going on with Mexico, as far mm. as I can see, anyway. So at some point, he's going to have to come back. And um, and talk to uh, Christian Freeland and Trudeau, um, and so far we have refused to give in to some of his demands. For example, that there be a sunset clause, right. you know, that the, any agreement automatically expire after five years. Yeah, I mean, that just, that's just insane. It's completely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make it, sense. It introduces all kinds of uncertain, permanent uncertainty built into it. Yes, in business, not what business wants exactly. To Exactly. All right, let's play this clip of First Lady Melania Trump speaking about cyberbullying. Right. Let's face it. Most children are more aware of the benefits and pitfalls of social media than some adults. 
How, uh, like, uh, like, is this is this just the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing, oh, or no, no. or is this a desperate attempt at the first lady to take a shot at her husband? Well, I, I feel very sorry for Melania because she didn't ask for any of this at all, and unlike other first ladies, who all had been in their husbands had been in politics before, and so to some degree, all the other first ladies. You know, we're, we're used to some political life. Melania, you know, was pitched suddenly into a world that she didn't want and she doesn't really, she didn't completely understand. But there have been a number of little signs that she, she's, um, you know, she, she's chosen a few little places to make clear that she doesn't doesn't agree with her husband. And this is another one, I think. Yeah, her message on the coat, which I can't remember what it was when she was meeting with uh, immigrants that had been detained. That's right. And Same also, sort of thing. In relation to LeBron James, when, when right. you know, she said she'd like to go and visit his school. And she's, she's off on a, on a private, or not a private, but a thing, you know, by herself on a trip to Africa. And she'll be terrific at that. You know, she seems a very nice, friendly woman. And on her own... You know, she's she's very acceptable. People really really like her, but she's saddled with this with this husband that nobody likes. But how is the White House handling the different messaging? I mean, certainly reporters are going to ask, well, how ironic that she says the statement that we just played for you while her husband is tw- you know tweeting like a madman. <laughs> the biggest bully of all. That's exactly. Right. I mean, how do they how do they uh, position the two different narratives? Well, they're just two very different people. I mean, she's. She's a woman who is trying to find some kind of role. Now, on the other hand, for example, a lot of insights... She can find a lot other roles. She can find many other roles, George, than contradicting what her husband's doing. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you know, most first ladies choose something like this, some kind of worthy cause, whether it's eating right or exercising more like Michelle Obama did. So the, the kind of thing she's chosen is... is is, is sort of normal for a first lady, and she's taken her while to get to that point. But of course, obviously, the contrast with her husband is pretty clear. <laughs> but but people do say some of the insiders say that he he takes her seriously. He, apparently, she, he does listen to her when she when she intervenes on certain kind of issues. Now, so we can expect the tweeting to stop? No, 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 no. <laughs> Nobody can do that. But I guess my point I'm making in all of this, George, is this is obviously a problem. This is obviously an issue yeah. that the media is pulling at. His his insulting demeanor on social media. Yeah. Does this not just draw attention to the to the president's bad behavior? Well, I mean, you know, we, there's lots of <laughs> everybody's well aware of his bad behavior. We hear exactly, you know, and so is his wife. Clearly, every day, you know. No, I, I think she, you know, I, I feel really sorry for the situation she's in. She seems like a really nice woman, and you know, give her some. Black, you know, don't try, try to. Don't, I'm not trying to bring her down in any of it. Honestly, and and if I've sounded that way, George, let me correct myself. No, no, I, I, know, I don't I mean know, to. I, I don't mean to slag the first lady no. because she's promoting a great cause. Yeah. I'm just saying, does the president listen to any of this? And I mean, how can they both have such differing messages? No, he's a hopeless case on on on, on issues like that. I mean, there's no way. people have tried. I mean, his chiefs of staff have tried to you know to take the. To, you know the phone away from him, but he's completely hopeless on that. So it's does this venting and you know it's his way of venting, 
and and uh, just the stream of consciousness. That's really what it is. So does this help the president when the first lady says such a thing? I think it does. I think it does. I think it's soft. really. I don't, maybe just a little bit. I mean, I think it certainly How? helps. It certainly helps her. Yeah. You know, and it certainly, it certainly helps, helps her by separating herself from him. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, she'll be a big success in Africa. I'm sure she will. Yeah. You know, without him, there was the famous photograph taken at, at Barbara Bush's funeral, where you had the Clintons and you had the Bushes and the Obamas, and then Melania all by herself, and everybody is smiling and having a good time. You know, Barbara Bush was an old woman. Um, but if her husband had been there, you know, it would have been very different. The, the mood would have been completely different. So, so the more she's able to do on her own, um, the better for her. I think it probably makes her, uh, you know. So is Donald Trump sitting there and listening to the same clip that we just listened to <laughs> and saying, good for you, honey? Maybe, or, or, maybe. or is he and just thinking that doesn't apply to me? Or, or, no, I mean, or is he I, saying, I mean, you know what, you're drawing more attention to my people, uh, people say he takes her seriously. And what he doesn't want, I mean, why pay off all these women that he had sex with? You know, why go to all that length? when nobody's particularly surprised to hear these kind of stories. Yeah. And apparently part of it is he's, he's trying to protect his wife from, you know, from openly shaming his wife. And so I think he takes her seriously. But there's a limit. You know, it doesn't change his behavior. My wife's way too built in. There's no way he's going to change. He's completely incapable of changing his boorish, bullying, you know, behavior. And uh, she, I mean, she, I'm sure she knows that there's no point even trying to do that. Uh, do you think, you know, sometimes it's odd because, again, as you said, she didn't really want to be thrown into this. No, she certainly didn't. Are, are you surprised she's even doing anything at all? Because well, it I mean, seems she, when she does, well, she it, six, it's sort of opposite to her husband. Well, she took six months. In, in the first six months, she stayed in New York City and didn't come to the White House yeah, at all. Yeah. On the perfectly reasonable excuse of not taking her, her, her son out, out of, of school, yeah. Yeah, and apparently she spent, her parents live in the Washington area now, and apparently she spends a lot of time with them. And she's disappeared for a month or two at a time. You know, so, you know she just hasn't been seen in public. For, so she, she's minimized, she, up till now at least, she's going to minimize her public role. But on the other hand, you know, there are... But she things. must be, when she goes out and does these appearances, George... Pardon? There must, when she goes out and does these appearances, yeah. and then, of course, here's the blowback afterwards right. of everybody saying that, you know, it's just, it's hypocritical, uh, your message is great, but, but what about your husband? Do something about him. <laughs> he, she must be getting that flack, too. Well, to some extent, I think. I think pe most people feel sorry for her. Yeah, know? yeah. Most people just feel sorry I for her. I can understand them feeling sorry for her, but then at what point w would they not say, but can't you do something about it? Well, you know, maybe she has on other issues behind the yeah. scenes, you know. That's what we're told at any rate. All right, it's uh, never-ending, and of course, I'm sure we will speak again many times, George. Okay. Thanks, as always. Okay, thanks, so no problem. George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University. Always a great discussion when we have, George. Let's bring in Nika Naimi, and uh, Nika is from Digital Respect. Let's get her thought on what the First Lady is saying and, 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 and why the President isn't listening to his own wife. Nika, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks for having me. Do you think that it's a little ironic that the first lady is coming out with such a message and her husband doesn't seem to be listening? Actually, no, I don't think it's ironic. I think that 
on the one hand, the topic of cyberbullying is uh, is a popular one. It's a buzzword kind of thing. It's a great at cause. Same, yeah, at the same time, it's a it's a very important cause. And I think that I think that the main thing that's lacking here is that a lot of a lot of queens, a lot of uh, governments, um, a lot of royalty have have spoken out against cyberbullying around the world. And they all have very positive messages, but their levels of involvement in in the the real grassroots of the issue are different. So sometimes they'll approach it at a very surface level, but I think that we really need to, you know, all all governments and uh, all around the world need to address the issue really deeply because it's a very deep rooted issue, and I think that it's not only about talking about it in the media and and you know. Everyone, everyone can be liable because everyone can be, we can finger point to anyone. We don't have to go to extreme examples. Anyone who talks about bullying or cyberbullying could be hypocritical because we've all acted in a certain way throughout our lifetime, right? We, we, maybe mm-hmm. we've had a history of being bullies when we were kids. Right. Um, and it doesn't mean that hu- human nature is incorrigible, right? So we have to look at human nature as something that is corrigible and that people can change, and that it's possible that because if you look at human nature like that, you're just going to let bullies be bullies in school, right? And you're not going to you're going to excuse them and say, well, that's the way they were born, that's their nature, and they can't change. Whereas through education and through um, you know literacy in terms of legal and also um, media literacy, that children can learn not to behave in these ways, even though they're maybe accustomed to acting in a certain way early on. So your thoughts on her message, which is obviously positive, but it's coming from a hypocritical standpoint in the sense that her husband is one of the worst offenders. I don't think it's coming from a hypocritical, you know, a hypocritical standpoint in that way. Because it's not her? No, I think no. I don't think it's because it's not her. It's or she's she's representing someone or or whatever. I think that the issue is is beyond all that. Okay, this is not a this is not a political issue. This is an issue that's affecting children. Yeah, and they're becoming, you know, suicidal. They're committing suicide because people are bullying them online, and not because, but yeah. this is a contributing factor to children committing suicide. This is a contributing factor. So a child who has you know, depression and anxiety and um, is predisposed to all kinds of mental illnesses can be bullied to the point of committing suicide. That is a bigger problem than anything else we're talking. We're talking about a whole generation who are online. Their parents are not connected as much as they should be. And one of the messages that Melania has put out is that children know best, right? So Mm -hmm. she's talking about uh, this Microsoft Council for Good. She's talking about children being involved on these, you know, and she's getting involved in these roundtables with people from technology. That's all good. But the, but adults do have a role to play because she kind of she doesn't talk about the, the role that adults should play. And I think that's really important. And I'm sure she will address it. But I think that um, if adults don't get involved in their children's lives and we just leave it in children's hands, I don't think that children themselves have the capacity to understand really the depth of this kind of bullying that's happening online, nor to be able to prevent it themselves. They may come up with some very good ideas. But I think that there needs to be political involvement. There needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach to this issue in which, like, you know, you have law enforcement involved. You have uh, the psychology sector involved. You have health services involved. There, there really needs to be a, an education is a big one that needs to be involved as well 
to address this issue at its root and not coming like from a top-down approach. Um, although top-down could help because if they have funding to give out to all these organizations around the U.S. and Canada who are working towards this, like the, the foundations and the, the NGOs and the nonprofits, they're doing a ton of work and they, they need more funding. So that, that's really important to point out. It's not just going to come top down. Right. So, I mean, in that sense, I think it's a good start. It's a good start to, to, so, start to address this issue. So the message is good no matter the source. And, and again, mm-hmm. I, like I don't want to take away from the message that Melania is delivering and the fact that she is doing it, because, of course, that is positive. I think where people feel the hypocrisy is, is that she's telling everybody else this when she should be telling her husband. Well, you know what? I think that there's another issue, the, the elephant in the room here, okay? Yeah. The elephant in the room here is freedom of expression. Right. Freedom of speech. So we, we are, I mean, in, in the Americas, we have a lot of freedom to say whatever we like. And that freedom if that impedes on other people's rights or if that, you know, offends other people, you know, at what point do we limit that freedom of speech? Right. So that that's a big question that needs to be posed to, you know, do we do we need policy reform? And if we do need policy reform, how can we have educational programs that speak to that kind of policy reform? We're actually talking about kind speech. So that's what she's talking. She's talking about kind speech. She's talking about respectful speech. So those are things that need to be addressed. Like, that's, that's a huge elephant in the room. Like, we're talking about um, people's rights to express themselves online, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever medium they choose to use, um, and say whatever's on their mind. But at what point does that cross other people's boundaries, other people's rights? So that's something I think that needs addressing. That's definitely something that needs addressing, no matter what country you're in. And different countries have different, um, have different laws on that. Uh, again, can't argue with any of that. And again, the message that she was trying to to convey, uh, obviously a positive one. Um, does the message, is the message less credible considering the source and the source's relation to a president which is obviously abusing this, pol- this sort of thinking? I don't think it should matter. In other words, as long as it's think- mentioned, it's good. No, I don't, I don't think as long as it's mentioned it's good. I think it's a good start, and I think that we should hold them to it. We should hold our governments to it. When they say that they're working on an issue that's so big, like cyberbullying, we should watch out and make sure that they're doing what they say, and we should, you know, we should democratically ensure that these policies are being, you know, if there are policies being developed or there is reform, that these are actually being integrated and that these are actually being, you know, and then there is funding going to schools and there is funding going to these uh, nonprofit organizations that are working so hard on this and all the, you know, all the people in academia who are working on this issue and stuff like that. So I think that they're all kind of, you know, their ears are kind of um, sharpened and they're listening to what's going on. But at the same time, they kind of want to know, well, are we really doing something about this as a country? You know, because I think that the U.S., um, you know, they they value their children. We value, you know, we value children and we value their well-being. Um, so I think that it's important to it's, it's really an important issue to address no matter where it's coming from. First, no matter who is talking about it. I think that, you know, it's bringing up an issue that needs to be addressed. First Lady Melania Trump spoke yesterday at an event to, to discuss the harsh realities of cyberbullying. 
while her husband was tweeting. And Nikki Naimi has been with us of Digital Respect commenting on all of this. Nikki, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, a study suggests that while putting the brakes on drive-thrus helps reduce noise and litter in some areas, uh, it could have health benefits as well. You know, when you think of work and uh, life and and the crazy balance that we have to keep, uh, it just seems to be that this is... Uh, an easy alternative, just driving up and, and wailing in. As of 2016, 27 local governments across Canada, including two in Alberta, have either fully or partially banned fast food drive throughs uh, And though the decisions were based on aesthetic concerns, says the University of Alberta, it also opens the door for promoting public health on a larger issue of urban planning. When we looked at the drive through bylaws, they say we saw the municipalities were concerned for sustainability and livability and trying to improve the visual impact on their communities. And because they were taking up these actions for economic and environmental and urban design considerations, uh, it also became a issue for health. They say restricting or eliminating drive throughs which provide easy access to fast food, and low nutrition, high fat, without having to get in the out of the car, helps to level the playing field with other walk-in restaurants that may offer healthier choices. If you create an environment where everything is walk-in, you have a healthy eating choice versus a less healthy option. They say it's not about restricting choice. As you may say, that's what they're doing. They say it's about opening up their choices. Many will say we have lots of choices, whether to walk-in or drive-in. What they're doing is removing the option. Of driving in. So, uh, as you can see, quite a, a divisive issue. Let's bring in Carol Harrison, registered dietitian, food and nutrition expert, and is on the line with us now. Carol, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, happy to be here. What are your thoughts on drive-throughs? Is it is, is this a cause? Is this one of the reasons we're as unhealthy as we may be? Well, you know, uh, fast food is a contributor. I think, of course, there's many contributors. There's no one fast fix for this, but it is important to keep in mind that unhealthy diets is a leading risk factor for death in Canada, and it costs us $26 billion every year. So um, looking hard at all the different ways that we can improve the food environment is really important work. Does a drive-through affect our decision? Does a drive-through determine whether we go to a place or not? Um, I don't know that any research has been done on that, so I, I, I would just be speaking about uh, opinions. But I think um, the more often we have a healthy food environment, uh, the easier it can be to make healthy choices. Uh, uh, what I think we need to remember is that it's really hard to educate people out of a bad food environment. If you know everywhere you go, the gas station, the fast food, the corner store, the recreation centers where you bring your kids to swimming lessons, if it's like 80% like unhealthy choices, then it's really hard to like find those healthy choices and maybe even want to make them because they might not even be all that appealing. You know, I think I've had to make this decision in the minivan myself uh, with a couple of kids. Um, you know, when you're driving somewhere and the alternative is, do we go into a sandwich shop per se, or do we go through the drive-through of a fast food, um, you know, hamburger joint? without right. mentioning any names. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think people are making that decision? Like, it, it would be great to go in and have perhaps something that might be a bit better, but God, this is just so much faster. Right. Well, you know, what I would like people to think about is 
you know, healthy convenience on the home front because I've done uh, restaurant reviews for the Toronto Star for the last eight years. We just wrapped up the column called The Dish, and it was really hard to give, like, places a double thumbs up. A, a lot of times it's really high in sodium. The portions are really big. They're really low on vegetables. So um, those options, you know, can be found, but they're kind of few and far between. So I'm a big fan. Even I, I took my kids to the Jays game last night, and I packed my purse with, like, four apples. I'm like, yep. Like, what, you know, who wants an apple? Like, we're halfway through the game. Let's do the stretch. I'm like, do you want a snackaroo? Um, so packing, you know, foods that are portable and healthy and, and easy like that, keeping a fruit bowl by your front door, grab a banana on the way out. Um, if you think you're going to be out for a while and you're going to need a snack. Um, Some so parents may be asking you right now, Carol, in regard to that Blue Jays game last night, and how did that go over uh, as they're looking at the kid next to them eating a hot dog? <laughs> Well, I brought my nephew, and and he was happy to eat an apple. And there was a, another one of my nephews, and he said, well, I'm only a green apple kind of guy. And he said, well, you're out of luck. Wow. I just have red apples. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, my point is, like, try and, uh, there are you know, ways to uh, sort of think through this smarter. Like, even on the home front, like uh, breakfast for dinner, you know, like an egg egg tacos, um, cracking open a can of, you know, beans or chickpeas and adding a salad kit. You got a salad, you know, meal, a fast fry steak in the pan with some already, some vegetables that are already chopped and prepped, ready to go, which you can buy at the grocery store. Instant, you've got a stir fry and that will be just as quick as going through drive through are we asking too much of the food industry? You know, you talk about being a critic for the the Toronto Star and reviewing yeah. various yeah. different places. Is your job, would your job have been then then to, uh, you know, to critique them on how healthy their food is or on how good it is? I mean, are we putting too much, too much uh, emphasis on restaurants to do what we should be doing ourselves? Restaurants aren't designed for you to eat there daily. They're not designed for you to do that. They're designed for you to go out and have a treat and eat something really cool that you wouldn't make at home, perhaps. Are we right. asking them to make the decisions for us because we, we don't have the willpower? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they're certainly catering to folks, you know, interests. And so, um, and I've spoken at the Canadian Restaurant and Food Service Association conference in the past, and I've reminded them, you know, about one in four people who are eating out are what they're calling health seekers. So they're people that are looking for healthy choices. Uh, it's not an occasional treat. Like when I grew up, it was a big deal for my parents to take all five of us out for a, a restaurant sure. meal. That was huge deal yeah. and now that it's just commonplace so it's it's not the odd treat and i guess that's what the concern is i mean 50 percent of our calories are coming from ready to ready to eat ultra processed foods so i'm not talking about you know like frozen veggies that are processed i'm talking about cookies and salty snacks and pop teenage only like one in ten kids eating the veggies and fruits so uh, I'm, I'm not pointing a finger at the restaurant industry i think we need to think about you know, all the different places where um, we're accessing food, the arenas, uh, hockey arenas, the recreation centers, teaching food skills at school. These are all important pieces. You talk about teaching food skills at, mm-hmm. uh, at school as part of, you know, a, a nutrition class. How important is that? Because I these habits love- obviously start early. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, we're looking for these convenient uh, choices because we're crunched for time. And so giving people the food skills so they know what to do with those carrots that are in the fridge or, you know, like how to turn, you know, a carton of eggs into like four different meal ideas is really important. I'd love to see a mandatory high school course where kids learn 
how to cook uh, quick and easy meals. You know, you talked about it's a timing issue, and, and as you mentioned, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, it was once in a blue moon that, the, you know, somebody took the family out for, for a dinner or whether it was even a, a fast food burger or, or something mm-hmm. more. Uh, so it seems that this is a part of our ritual now, not so much for the eating, but for the convenience of it all. Uh, if someone was to invent a fast food place that is great for you, where the food is only good for you, would it do well? Do we have those alternatives? Do we have those options? Um, I think there's an appetite for more for that, and I think, um, you know, the restaurateur who kind of jumps on that will have a really great niche. There's a real interest in people getting back to naturally nourishing foods and recognizing, you know, we've, we've, the pendulum swung way too far. 60% of the calories in teenagers' diets come from these ultra-processed foods. First generation of kids growing up on things that a lot of us wouldn't really call real foods, um, that's really worrisome. So, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a, an opportunity for that. And even at the grocery store level, too, so you pick up your groceries and you grab maybe a meal kit, you know, and it's got your, your chicken or your fish and, you know, all the veggies that you would throw in a sheet pan, you pop it in the oven, and 20 minutes later, dinner's done. you got your veggies and you got your meat, and you just add, you know, a glass of milk and call it dinner. Uh, is there any way to battle a drive through I mean, is this just a convenience we're not going to give up? Uh, is it worth banning these in certain areas? Well, um, I'm, I'm, I am very sympathetic of people who live in those neighborhoods who say the noise, the lights, the pollution, like mm. I even, I mean, I've, I go through drive through <laughs> um, and I feel awful idling my car and thinking about six or eight cars in front of me idling all the weight for like a coffee or a tea. It uh, kind of makes me sick to my stomach as I sit there and do that. So I sympathize with that. And I think for like all those reasons, you know, people have got a right to think about, you know, what do they want in their own neighborhood and the, the aesthetics of it and the traffic issues it causes. And if a parcel and if a spinoff is less access to food that's unhealthy, then that's a nice spinoff. It's kind of odd that the reason that people have been stopping or they've been issuing bylaws uh, to stop drive throughs it's because of noise and people just getting yes. irritated as opposed to public health. Yes, I know. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. We, you know, we, um, but like I said, I think the tide's turning and people are really starting to care about what am I putting in my body? I only get one body. So I tell my kids, you, you got one, but that's what you got to go. To go. <laughs> Uh, you don't you don't get to trade it in when you turn fifty or sixty for a new one. So think about it. And it doesn't mean everything has to be uber healthy. I mean, gosh, I I love a good burger, you know, just as much as someone else. And I'll eat French fries too. It's just a matter of how often we eat those foods and just make sure that we're you know half our plates vegetables and fruits most of the time, a quarter quality protein and a quarter whole grains, and that's as simple as it can be. Uh, is, you know, at the end of the day, it seems education goes a lot further uh, in school and, and teaching the kids than it does to come up with a bylaw like this. I agree. And, uh, you know, I 100%. Um, and so getting, uh, getting those uh, food skills back in, into the classroom and even parents, you know, simple things. I, I know we're, like, crazy busy, but just simple things like teach your kid how to, you know, like make a simple salad and then say, all right, I've taught you once. That's good. That's your job now. A few nights a week, I want you to make the salad. Like, you, you know the three steps and, and go to it and just slowly build from there. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. Um, you can take it in baby steps. Just teach them how to, you know, 
grate a carrot even. What about getting kids to make their own lunch? Yeah, well, and um, that's wonderful because they're more likely to eat it, which is really important. And then they're starting to, to learn about And then you also get off the hook eventually, right? You don't yeah. have to do it for them. So I'm at the point now where my there. young, I'm at the point now where my son makes my lunch. I absolutely love it. But mind you, it's been two years of hell to get to that point. <laughs> but it's so worth it because right now we don't have food skills being taught in the class. So why not say, all right, we've got to make lunches anyway. Why don't I start to train you up so that by the time maybe you're, you know, grade 7, 8, you kind of got this mostly figured out. Um, you don't want to let them go on their own, of course, because who knows, like yeah. there could be food safety issues and yeah. all that, and it's not going to be balanced. But um, I'm, I'm all for that, and I think that's a, that's a small thing that maybe with school, you know, uh, we're on the cusp of back-to-school time. It could be something parents can start to talk to their kids about right now. It's all right. This is something new we're going to do. We want to start to uh, get you guys more involved in packing your lunches. Just do it when dinner is still all out. What have you got left over that you can put into a lunch? Keep it easy. Cook once, eat twice. Uh, lunch bag letdown. I remember that being an advertisement in the 70s and 80s, and it was like, oh, my God, all you got was that sandwich. And that's pretty much what, what, fu- which fueled the, what fueled the the whole processed food thing. It's, you know, the lunch bag letdown, so we're going to fill it with crap that at least tastes good, I guess. Yeah, well, um, people, again, are. I think we mostly want to do the right thing. We're just stuck for ideas. I think people are saying, hey, Good like, point. give me some really great ideas. I'm happy to do that. How do I keep it simple and quick? Um, and evolving your kids is a great way because you'll start to see what they like and what they don't like, and, and, um, and you can kind of move the dial a little bit to introduce some new foods if they're involved in preparing it because they get to touch it and see it and smell it, and it's more familiar. It's not something that's so new. Website we can go to, Carol? Oh, well, you can come to yummylunchclub.ca. That's a site where I help to make planning and packing a healthier lunches easier for kids and help them to build food skills along the way. Carol Harrison has been with us, registered dietitian and food nutrition expert. A new study says that while putting the brakes on the drive through helps reduce noise and litter, it also has health benefits. Carol, thanks for the time and insight. Much Thank appreciated. You. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.